When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. You own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. So what we're doing, everybody, is we're doing a podcast. So we thought we would do this live here real quick. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started with our podcast. And um, then from there, we can uh, answer any questions. All right. Let's dive in. Uh, we've got a lot of vague questions from a lot of uh, listeners and uh, from the podcast, from YouTube. And uh, we try to do a good job of getting on there, responding to questions. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's awesome to be able to jump on here live with everybody and uh, answer some questions here uh, just on YouTube, on social media. And uh, I know lately we've been talking a lot about rates. We've been talking a lot about revenue management. We've been talking about macroeconomic factors going on. Um, There's a lot going on. There's so much in the storage industry happening right now. And um, one of the uh, one of the things that we could really start with here is uh, mitigating risk and taking over a storage facility for a beginner. That's one of the questions I'm seeing here coming up. Yeah. So when we're looking at risk, there's a few factors, obviously, that we're going to be dealing with. If you're monetarily speaking, the biggest outlayers are going to be things like CapEx. I see a lot of problems with capital expenditures and risk is that it wasn't fully evaluated. They didn't know. So then there's a surprise. And those can be large ticket items that will then change the economics of your return completely. Um, And so you got to make sure you really go through, get professionals out there to help you check the quality of the asset. You need to be looking specifically at things like roofs, pavements, right? Doors, quality, HVAC systems are very expensive. For sure. All the big ticket items. Um, And in our experience, as far as mitigating risk goes, uh, you you have those experts that are going out and doing your property condition reports, right? Mm -hmm. With, With, you know, whether that's CBRE or any other company you're using to go out and do those specific reports, However, we've found it extremely valuable to expand those reports um, either through that third party or even going out and getting our own contacts and having them go out there. So instead of having the surveyor look at the roof and look at everything else, like they do that, but you're having someone, you're having a roofer go out and actually analyze the roof and provide feedback. And and those subject matter experts go out and look at HVAC, roofing, asphalt, Drainage, drainage is another big one. They're going to see things other people Um, won't. Exactly right. So get those experts out. That's a big one for sure, mitigating risk. Um, Other things are the structure placed on. I talk about this a lot, but most of the deals that I see that actually uh, fail aren't due to the deal itself failing, but more the structure of the deal failing. And that structure in general, what we're talking about is open-end liabilities, and open-end structures that are subject to change, the main one being things like interest rate, floating rates, short-term, I call them trigger points, where the deal needs to be re-evaluated, re-analyzed. And if the things in the market have changed, um, that analyzation of that asset may not look good, even if the asset is not changing, because there are other factors like cap rates due to uh, interest rates. So external factors that are affecting the asset, not just cash flow and profitability. And uh, that that sucks to see when people get 
caught by that or get in trouble because the asset was fine. It was still making money and cash flowing, right? But then they, they got in trouble because that valuation all of a sudden changed. And now it may not be worth, air quotations, what it was worth prior. Um, and they reevaluate debt to equity um, and debt to income load and things like that. Right, right. No, it's so true. And then you also have you have the operational risk as well. And I know you just did a podcast or a, a YouTube video on this recently talking about one of our acquisitions that we had uh, that had a lot of operational risk that we ended up finding out about you know, essentially after the fact yes. um, that helped us really refine our operations, our due diligence and what that looks like. Um, and the, one of the examples with that asset was the, the lack of leases. And yes. you know, on a business plan, when you're going in and you're saying, hey, I'm going to go in, I'm going to increase rates by X amount of time and all of this, right? You're going to drive revenue. But you go in and come to find out the leases that you had been provided weren't actually you know, executed properly. There are no leases for the tenants, all of that. Um, so we've seen that. We've had that experience. So now we're, we go in and we QA. We get as many leases as we can. We have our admins go through and QA leases, make sure that they're filled out properly. And sometimes we'll look at every single lease depending on the size of the asset, but sometimes we'll just look at a handful. For most of the time, so, that's not feasible. No, it's and not. And I think, you, you know, know hundreds and, of units. Exactly. But. And I hear people talking too, not only is it hundreds of units, but honestly, unless you're buying. So for the most part, people are not buying institutional grade operated funds, yeah. assets. These are mom and pops and they don't have those things. Um, they don't even know how to get, I can't tell you how many times the owner said, I don't know how to get you the leases. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're like, you can't send them to us? Well, no, they're all in paper form. How do I even get that to you? Yeah, We've actually had to have people go and scan with phones and things because the owner <laughs> didn't know how to do it. So, so that's that's actually more of the norm that people will run into is the disorganization of the current operator or owner, the lack of available lease agreements, and uh, frankly, the ones that are just, they're all wrong, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You will find owners that, well, what lease agreements, right? I don't have anything. Uh, that's yeah. very, very common. And so you got to really understand those tenant agreements, what's laid out, who's doing what, who's where, meaning lease to units, lease to doors, mm -hmm. and what those agreements in place are. Because also owners have one-off agreements. So they have one-off agreements with a friend with family. They have one-off agreements with a business that uses the storage in a certain way, right? Um, and that can really trip you up if you buy it and say, oh, well, we don't do this, and they go, but I have an agreement, right? So really make sure you understand that before you, uh, mm -hmm. before you get into it and are surprised with uh, some already negotiated agreements. For sure. Well, I mean, it really throws a wrench in your whole business plan execution as far as increasing revenues and your ability to actually do that uh, totally goes out the window. And depending on what state you're in, counties, all yes. of that, I mean, it totally varies in what you can and can't do uh, from a lease standpoint and evictions and rate increases, all of that um, ties into that. So, um, one of the questions, and by all means, if anybody has any questions, please feel free, jump in, let us know what your questions are here uh, on Instagram. Uh, but one of the questions I've got that popped up is, what about security deposits and prepaid rent? Do you usually negotiate getting money back at closing on these items? All right, so security deposits, um, prepaid rent. Uh, I guess I'm not, I don't have a problem with pre uh, prepaid rent. I do not like security deposits. 
Mm-hmm. I don't like it at all. So there's a few reasons why I don't like security deposits. Uh, first of all, I'm now managing and I am now, I, I, I'm taking on a uh, liability. So you're giving me as a tenant money that I am responsible to you. And the argument against it is, yeah, but if anything happens, you can give it back. And I'm like, why in the world would I want to be put in a position where I have to argue? Because people are going to want money. So they're going to come back for it, right? Um, So it's easier to put in fees. If Mm -hmm. you damage a unit, you are charged this. It's not a question. It's in the lease. I'm not going to hold your money. And then have you come back after me to get it. And then I have to, I have all this cash on hand on the books and I got to be ready to be paying people out. Right. I don't, I just don't want to be in that position ever. Mm -hmm. It's, it it should be, you're paying me to use my facility. And if you screw something up, you're paying for that thing that you screwed up. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the deposit that you're going to get is never going to be meaningful enough anyways Mm -hmm. to really take care of a problem. And at best, you just get to keep it if they leave, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't argue. I don't know. Not I, my thing. I don't like it. No, and even on on all the acquisitions that we've done, I I haven't seen a security deposit or, or any tenant ever say, hey, I had a security deposit down or, you know, I want money back because I'm moving out. Like, I've never seen that. Yeah. I've never actually seen a storage facility doing that. Um, but what you do, what what this kind of makes me think about, though, is as you're going through and analyzing a deal, um, you're talking about leases and whether or not you get them. If you can get a balance sheet that shows you all the uh, you know assets, liabilities, um, the you you want to get an aging schedule on the accounts receivable, and make sure that you don't have an outstanding amount of delinquencies. And if you do, you can plan for that. Yeah. So you need to know what that looks like if there are. Uh, going to be delinquencies that you're going to have to collect on. Yeah, but my suggestion is don't take. I I wouldn't take security deposits. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, totally. It's a hassle, administrative, and it's a liability for you. Um, and the super awesome question: um, Would you build your own facility, AJ? Yes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Done. Uh, that's uh, that's a good one. That's too good. And uh, it sounds like some people have questions about building and or running facilities in small towns. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast a little bit. If we're talking, you know, 5,000 or less people, what does that look like? I know we talked a lot about how smaller towns are impacted a lot more in the swings. If you want to kind of touch on that a little bit for for everybody here. So I divide up markets into four categories. You have declining, stagnating, growing, and booming. Uh, those four categories are very, very different. Your strategy within each is different. The pros and cons are different for each. And it's not one. So a lot of people like to say just one thing is bad, but that's not true. The, a booming market, the negative parts of a booming market and investing in a booming market are massive. The dangers associated with that um, can be uh, catastrophic, frankly. Uh, anyone that's been through a recession has seen a market that is growing north of two, two and a half percent plus, not grow at two and a half percent and what that does to the market. Um, and declining markets, obviously, it's the same thing. You're, you're losing a base. There's, there's that risk that is very real and evident. So how you go into a booming market versus a dying market. Now, 
either one of those, that's not what most people are going to invest in, those extremes, right? Most people are going to invest in something like a more stagnant market, which a stagnant market, really, I'm just putting right around that base level growth. It's meaning it could be growing, but it's just not meaningful growth. I look at it as if that market isn't growing at the same rate of basically, you know, inflation or less on good services. It's kind of overall decaying, but it may still be growing. That's a stagnant market. Um, you're looking at those lower quartiles is making your money on your buy. So where you have on growing markets or booming markets, you have an equity element to it and you have a future uh, demand element that can bail you out over the long run. There's more danger in short-term fluctuations uh, where in those other markets, you have external um external risks of valuation because you don't have that buyer that's going to come in and buy you out. You don't have, you know, those cap rates will fluctuate larger. There's not a big pool of investors. There's not as much demand for the asset side. Customers may have a lot of demand for the products. Mm -hmm. So we own in cities that are, we have one in dying city, we have one segment, and that was the most of our market when we started. Very small cities that weren't doing a lot. We realized the exit strategy was not to sell because we didn't know if that would ever even happen. And mm -hmm. the market today is a perfect example of that. If you're trying to sell an asset in a small city, it's a struggle because banks don't want to loan there. So those are way more susceptible to outside things that affect equity, right? That may be investor demand, that may be capital markets. There's a whole bunch of things that can happen. And so that equity part is what we see, the greater shift. While income though, in more of a stagnant market, actually may be outrageously consistent. Mm -hmm. um, you may not have anything going on, right? So what, the goal for those would be a cash flow play only and you're getting what you buy. So I look at those and say, hey, this is a cash flow. I'm owning it till it dies. And if that makes sense, great. Um, where the other ones, it's I, I expect rent to have growth. So I expect intrinsic growth on the actual revenues and extrinsic growth on the equity. And so I can buy with that expectation. Uh, so small markets, especially small markets that aren't growing, that's, that's your risk. Your risk is that when it comes time to refinance or it comes time to sell, that you're not in a good spot and the market is not available for those strategies. Mm -hmm. No, really good points, man, really good points. Uh, another question here, uh, if rates rise a lot more and force people to leave their houses, wouldn't that be a positive for self-storage, especially if people downsize? Uh, just because rates are going up doesn't mean people are leaving their houses, and we've actually seen the total opposite. Yeah, of that. yeah. There's a misnomer that um, bad things that happen in the economy will result in um, good things for storage. And people often use 2008. Uh, you have to realize we had 30% vacancy in 2008 and revenue cratered during that time, but storage had the lowest debt of any asset. Um, a bad market wasn't good for storage. Storage just wasn't as bad as the other asset classes. So if we did have a market where everybody was losing their homes or downsizing, right, that doesn't mean all of a sudden we're going to be at 95% occupancy and raising rates. That didn't happen. That did not happen during the Great Recession, even though a lot of people for some reason think that it did. Um, so people moving in general is good. 
So when people are moving, that is good for storage, but also people are consuming, that's good for storage. We need the movement, we need the consumption overall, but we also need people that can pay. So mm -hmm. your ability to raise rents and that rent fluctuation of storage is much greater. So we can maintain occupancy at much lower, lower rents, uh, street rates until you don't have enough revenue to cover your bills. Um, so we can absorb those changes quicker on an occupancy level, but the revenue that's different, right? Mm -hmm. So I really hesitate anyone thinking that, oh yeah, well, if the housing market goes down or the American economy goes down, it's okay. That's good for people losing their homes is good for storage. Uh, it that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Yep, hundred percent, hundred percent. Be be weary of uh, absolutes and those generalities, and always just saying, "Oh, well, if this happens, then that happens." Yeah. Uh, sometimes, I mean, sometimes things are that way, but very rarely. The last time interest rates went up, the housing market crashed. This time, it's didn't happen, and the reasons are that it's two totally different markets, right? One hundred. It was not going to happen this time. Um, the the homeowners you're talking about an affordability to pay their homes is actually really good it's better than it's ever been because everybody was locked in for 30-year mortgages at three percent and under 2008 that was not the case at all um, these were short-term floating interest rates that adjusted up with as interest rates going they weren't locked for 30 years these were multiple houses that people owned. It was totally, mm -hmm. totally different. Yeah, no, definitely different times for sure. Uh, decent question here. Do you include the rate increase schedule in the lease on move-in? If that's done, is there any need to notify uh, tenants each time an increase is required so it happens automatically? Good question. No, we just tell them that we can raise it, and um, we do. Yep. Uh, we don't tell them when or how or any of that. It's just we, and yes, you do have to provide them notice, provide a 30-day notice. Yeah. Uh, so let's well, say. Well, it's, it's by state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The exactly. laws are dictated yep. by state on the notification. So we uh, we pretty much across the board, we'll do like the the 30-day notice. Then, mm -hmm. you know, the following month is when that new rate takes effect. So mm -hmm. uh, something to consider for sure as far as you planning out your business plan and your rate increase schedule and what that looks like, you know, on the revenue side. Uh, so that was a good question there for sure. But no, we we don't give any forecasting uh, to tenants. Our lease agreements state we can raise rates at any time for any reason that we want. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Uh, I'm looking to build a storage unit and facility. Do you know how I would structure that? Do I buy the land first and then finance the construction? Uh, we've actually talked a little bit about this. We had a podcast with uh, with Forge Building Company uh, quite a while back. Yeah. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's on the podcast. You guys can go check that out. But uh, you can pretty much structure a deal however you however want. However you want. And uh, I think that normally when people are looking, for, we, I can tell you how we've done it and how we do it. Um, and at the time when we were doing a lot of this, this wasn't what people would consider the best way it was for us. And that was, we were actually going out and buying the land in cash. And then we are going through the approval processes and getting everything ready so we could break ground. Um, the reason why people uh, didn't like that and that wasn't a good idea was we were using all our money to buy the land when interest rates were really, really cheap. So that actually affects your returns. And we had a lot of people and a lot of investors that thought that that wasn't the smart thing to do because it would have hurt our returns. The reason why we did that is for what we have just seen. 
those properties that we did that on, we own the land free and clear. We're not getting charged interest rates. There's not going to be a time where we have to refinance. We're not going to get trapped. We're not going to get caught. We don't run the risk of the development uh, not, get improve, uh, not getting approved. And then we own debt on land where a value is changed. Um, that, it, that for us, we didn't want to do it. We were more conservative. Um, that is not a normal route that developers take. Uh, but it is one that we have decided that we would take and we do, which we like that because developments are so unknown. Now, a better way to do it even than that would be you have a contract with the owner that you will purchase the land upon you being accepted to build so that way you don't put your money into it till you are building. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, those contingencies. Yes, but for especially in spots that we were looking at and we have the location was so ideal that there was no way the sellers were ever going to agree to that it was you either take it or leave it so <laughs> yeah sometimes that's the uh, yes. that's the option you're presented with uh man this is a good question right here and right up our alley uh that we've been talking a lot about should a tenant's price increase ever go over the street rate listed? Oh. In my area over the last month, I've seen facilities start to have units available uh, that have been shown full. They have decreased their pricing to lease back up. If I want to match their pricing, I'm worried to increase my current customer rate higher than street. Okay, we're going to have some uh, people that are going to either be upset, shocked, or I don't know. So close your ears, Ernie. I don't want to offend you here. Um, <laughs> so here's the reality of the situation. Street rates and in-place rates have nothing to do with each other. So uh, street, we are in a situation within our industry where street rates are basically just um, ways to get people in. Um, but we see massive fluctuations within not only street rates, but in-place rates. REITs generally do very discounted prices and then quickly, aggressively, in three months are upping rates by multiples. So you could go in a year, you could get a $50 rate, and by eight months you're paying, you know, 150. Uh, that's actually quite common. Uh, the reason being is they're trying to get you, you're they're trying to acquire that customer, so they're playing the cost game. And then they know once you move in, you're not gonna leave. And so then they just jack up your rates. Um, and that works. And we've actually tried to uh, not play that game. And that hurt us because the market doesn't seem to care. So unfortunately, we're in a situation where, yeah, we do. Our street rates and our in-place rates don't align. They don't have anything to do with each other. Um, now, for people that are like, oh, that's wrong. Well, I often use the example, you don't go take your milk back to Walmart when they're doing a sell the next day on milk. Yeah. Like, that's not <laughs> how it works, right? So yeah. you don't go back to the, the dealership and say, hey, you're you're giving a 20% discount. I bought this two months ago, take it back or you know what? So we do move in specials, you do those things. So yeah. you may have rates that are online that not may, any large operators, the rates that are online or street rates do not follow or correlate in place rates, especially because in place rates are individualized. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly right. I mean, this is, I mean, we've been last, few weeks this has been the topic of discussion here uh, at the companies and uh, it's a really good question it's a really good question um, do any uh, do any management systems automatically increase in place rates based on criteria you set I know some do this for street rates based on occupancy and uh, yes we actually mm -hmm. utilize a system called Veritech 
Uh, and it's a automated system that you can put those yes. inputs in and it tells you, you know, what that risk profile is and how much you should or should not increase rates. So and tenant so tenant inc will actually just automate it. So meaning you're in place, your person comes in and you can set the parameters. I want them to get mm -hmm. a six percent rate increase every six to nine months, and then it's a plug and play. Then you just let it go and it'll take care of that. Um, you can also install things predicated once again on occupancy, demand to adjust rates. Um, the, but those still have to be hands-on. None of those systems are perfect. So if you're not actually in there looking at things, doing adjustments, um, you're going to be leaving money on the table. 100%, 100%. Uh, one of the questions we got is, uh, what determines a market, uh, as far as a size, like radius, uh, mm -hmm. A lot of times we talk about that three to five mile radius, mm -hmm. and um, it's it's a good general standard, but you also need to be looking at demographics as well. You need to be looking at uh, the d geography as well, uh, where you might have you might have rivers, you might have freeways, you might have certain things that it might not actually make sense to look at the yeah. five mile radius on the other side of a freeway over here versus looking yeah. more towards a different direction. Yeah, we, we don't uh, look at like circle radiuses at all. Like, yeah. so when we're doing our feasibility studies, so people, which people pay us to do feasibility studies, it's all predicated on drive time because the, what Connor's talking about is how it works. Meaning that freeways act like rivers of old people just don't cross them right i mean it's weird, it's weird. they don't even if it's yeah. so much closer it's we don't we don't get it we don't but it's how it works and people follow patterns and those patterns are generally dictated on driving so you have to look at it and you would be shocked by what you would think is a three mile this way right but somebody within a mile is actually has to drive further than somebody that's three miles away. So you can actually be targeting the wrong people. No, and it's super important too, especially once you get into the operations, not only the analysis portion, but when you're operating the facility and you're targeting your marketing, your ad mm -hmm. spend, all of those things, super, super important to know where your tenants are. Yes. Because it doesn't make any sense to be throwing tons of ad spend in an area where someone's clicking your ads like crazy that they're never going to yeah. go there. They find out, oh, so, you're there, I'm not going there. Exactly right, exactly right. You all support us, so we want to support you. That's why if you leave a review on our podcast today, you can follow the link below, send it to us, and we are giving you our audiobook for growing wealth and self-storage completely for free. Thank you for your support. We appreciate our self-storage community. Uh, one of the questions was uh, finding finding investors when you're raising capital. Yeah. How do you do that? So investors, when you're trying to find investors for raising capital, this is going to depend on a lot of things because not everyone is an investor for you. They're just not, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, but depending on your situation, you may need different things. You may need someone to actually sign on the debt for you. You may need an investor to bring all of it, a portion of it. You may need... Um, an operating partner plus an investor. You, there's all these different ways to structure deals. Uh, when you're looking for finding investing uh, investors, uh, the best way to do it is go to network events, meetings, to find people that that's what they do. They actually place capital in real estate because they're already gonna have that framework 
of understanding what they're trying to get. And so it's easier to partner up with them. Um, for most people starting out, friends, family, that's, that's the best first step. Um, and there's a big difference too between raising capital from friends and family and syndicating. And so you need to talk to an attorney that specializes in the SEC regulations because you need to understand whether you are selling a security, whether you're not, what are the rules, because those are very, very serious rules. And your filing and how you're doing it can have very big implications. Mm -hmm. So do not screw around with that. Make sure you are talking with an SEC attorney. Ours approves what we're putting out in marketing. Mm. Um, I mean, it's that that's important stuff that you you don't want to screw around with. No, because it, it it doesn't go away. And I mean, this is your reputation after all. This is you you your company mm -hmm. your investors. Uh, super super important. Uh, insert disclaimer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's a big deal for sure. It's a yeah. big deal. Uh, well, we had some good questions today. Any any. Uh, parting words of advice for people getting into storage, starting out? Yeah, I mean, storage, first of all, it's its own unique animal. So immersing yourself, uh, immersing yourself in the industry is just a generally a good idea. Understanding the lingo, understanding value, understanding the players, what they're buying, why they're buying things certain ways. So understanding the market dynamics, like it's very different. Small facilities from big facilities, small markets to big markets. Um, automation versus fully staffed. There's there's a lot of different avenues because storage is a business. It is not just simply a real estate investment. Um, so you need to be looking at it like a business. So get immersed in the industry, jump in, start networking um, and learning about it uh, and really learn everything you can. I couldn't agree more. Um, and there's a really great opportunity to do that in September. Yes, the event. Yes. That's right. Coming up, man. It's coming up. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, yeah. this September. What are the dates again? The 20- This is the third one, and uh, it's uh, a week long. So we're, um, we're getting getting close, and it's, it's going to be awesome. You guys can follow the link below yeah. and check it out. Um, but, yeah, on the lake, dinners, I, I mean- it's awesome. It's going to be epic. And again, getting started in storage really is just starting those conversations, letting everybody know what your plans are, what you're doing, where you're yeah. at. Um, I can't tell you how many people come to these events, end up doing deals together, finding deals. Uh, I mean, it's an amazing opportunity to connect, to learn, to grow um, in all shapes and sizes with, uh, you know, in and outside of the storage industry. Yeah. It's just you've got these people from all walks of life coming in. And uh, it's just, it's an amazing atmosphere. And, and I'm, I'm really pleased with uh, what the team's been able to put together the last few years at, at that, yeah. that meetup. Yeah. It's been pretty rad. So 100%. We'll see you guys there. See you there. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Thanks everybody.